Well, this is the last week of our Who Are You sermon series. Uh, next week is Palm Sunday, so we get to focus on that. And when I was planning uh, this particular sermon series, I looked and it came out the seven weeks and they just happened to be the weeks that led up to Palm Sunday and Easter. You see, there really is a God. Because I can't sort any of this out, but he can. Well, where we've been over the last several weeks, we started with, uh, who are you? Well, you are made in the image of God. Each and every human being from the very beginning made in the image of God, which gives us dignity and purpose. We are fallen people. Because of sin, we don't work the way that we were intended to work, and our world itself has become broken. The wrong things, the broken things, the evil things in our world stem from that first human failure and our every agreement with it since. We are fallen, but we are not forgotten. God determined that he wasn't just going to leave us, leave us in our mess, but that he would make it right. We talked about how we are rescued. God sent his son to find us when we were lost to pay the debt of our sin so that we would no longer be guilty. And then to rise to new life so that we too would have hope for new life. That this world is, is not all that there is. That's a particularly good message in the midst of an, a year-long, at this point, pandemic. At the midst of, we were, I was talking with someone this week, and we were saying so many people in our church have had surgery and pain and sickness and all of these different things that are going on. I don't know if it's happening all over the world or just in our church, but there is a real sense of, I really hope that this isn't all there is to life. At least that's been my experience. As a matter of fact, uh, this may be a preview of things to come, but I remember uh, a moment or maybe a lot of moments when I was laid up with my back and I was just stuck lying down and I, I felt like I couldn't be free of my pain and I thought, I really want to get better. And there was a, a moment or a series of moments where God seemed to be saying, what if the goal in your life is not to get better? Because how often are we satisfied with this life? And maybe, maybe our hurts are God's way of saying, it's not, you don't just need this life kind of a little bit better. You need new life. It was a moment where God was saying, okay, Ian, you need to stop finding all of your satisfaction here. You need to start looking for it in what I've promised you. New life. I'm coming back. And I thought, Hey, God, can you wait till I'm well? <laughs> I don't know if I want to hear that right now. I don't know if I'm okay with possibly however many years of my life left hurting. Some of you I know, that's been what your life has been like. You know something better about what it is to say, I don't just need this life a little better. I need God's new life. Who are you? You are rescued. Not to something a little bit better, but to an entirely new and different life in Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. We are not just made in the image of God. We are not just uh, fallen, but not forgotten. We are not just rescued, but we are also Holy Spirit people. Or at least that's what God has intended us to be as followers of Jesus Christ. 
people who live not out of this life, like I was just talking about, but out of the new life that God has laid up for us in heaven and is already pouring out into us through the Holy Spirit. We are Holy Spirit people, and that makes us God's children. The Holy Spirit seals us for adoption as God's sons. Not to uh, uh, discriminate against the daughters, but rather to say, so that we will receive, like sons in the ancient world, all of God's inheritance for ourselves and for all those who are in Jesus Christ. And then, finally, last week, Uh, We talked about we are not just people on our own, but we are part of a church. And this week is sort of a a summary of all of this, and we're going to talk a lot about the church some more. I I was realizing as I put all this together, I I sort of had my my seven weeks written down on all of these topics, and and I researched scriptures and everything and, and, and put together a series of messages based on them. And when I got to number seven, uh, you are the light of the world. I realized this is just another way of summarizing everything that we've talked about so far. I think it's pretty cool. So let me share it with you. Why are we the light of the world? Because if you're anything like me, there are a lot of moments where you don't feel a lot like the light of the world, unless the light is really obnoxious and light when you wish it was dark instead, like daylight savings uh, early in the morning after you've sprung forward. You're like, really, I could do with a little less light in the world right now and a little more sleep. But God has intended for us, just as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, as Ray read for us, to be the light of the world, a city on a hill that can't be hidden. When Jesus talks about being the light of the world elsewhere in the Gospels, he says, who who lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket so that no one can see its light? See, Jesus Christ has put light in us, and he intends for us to share it with the entire world, something that is not the daylight savings light, but something that is a welcome Light that begins to transform the world around us. So why, how even are we the light of the world? And we often feel, gosh, really, really not up to the task. Well, see, it's not primarily about us going out and doing more than we did before. Isn't that the answer that we normally come up with? We just got to work harder to make everything better, right? If I don't have enough money, I work more hours at my job or I work harder to get that promotion. If uh, my family, my relationships seem to be falling apart, I need to work harder at them. You know, I'm I'm not saying working harder is a bad thing, but I'm just saying that when it comes to being the light of the world, everyone is trying to work harder, and yet it doesn't seem like the world gets any brighter does it? If you follow the path of human thought throughout history, you get to the Enlightenment in Europe in the 18th, especially the 18th and 19th centuries. The Enlightenment project is, I mean, in a lot of ways, our nation, America, is sort of an Enlightenment project. This sense of if you just give us enough time with the tools at our disposal, especially the tool of science, we will make right everything that has gone wrong in the world. We will cure sickness and disease. We will cure mental illness. We'll take care of all of the world's problems. We'll make better crops and everything will be great. 
and the Enlightenment project was going, and it was going good until we got to the 20th century, and we had the war to end all wars. And almost an entire generation in the West died in the trenches or was irrevocably, almost irredeemably scarred by their experience. It's interesting if you read books written in the 20s and 30s and just the prevalence of people who had been gassed and whose physical health would never be the same. The people who experienced shell shock, what we probably call today PTSD, and they never could quite get their lives back on track. And then, 20 years later, we did it again in World War II. And how did World War II end? With a great scientific achievement of the atomic bomb and the threat of nuclear warfare for 50, 60 years. The sense that at any moment the U.S. and the Soviet Union could destroy all life on the earth. The uh, philosophy of the Enlightenment is often called modernism or modernity. And what came after that was simply called postmodernism. It didn't need its own name, really, just to say after modernism because we were so disillusioned with it. It failed us in such a spectacular way. We've been working harder, and yet the world hasn't been getting any brighter. We are specially equipped as God's people to be the light of the world because it's only in the church that the image of God begins to be restored. Because the truth is that it's become marred and distorted, isn't it? where Adam and Eve were designed to be people that all of the creation would look at and say, there is a God in heaven who rules. Well, we're not like that anymore, are we? We look around and we see people who point us in all sorts of different directions. We have philosophical confusion, religious confusion. We have every sort of confusion that we can possibly imagine. And it comes out of our broken nature. It's not just those people over there who are particularly corrupt. It's all of us failing to reflect who God is. The image of God isn't gone in us, but it is broken and distorted. Sickness, evil, disease, and above all, death have obscured the image of God in human beings. But the church is the body of Christ, the presence of Christ in the world. And this is who Christ is. He is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15, the Son is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation with the rights of the firstborn over all creation. Jesus Christ has the exact stamp of God's being Hebrews 1.3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He is the likeness of God, the icon, image. Uh, you've heard that word icon or before? It's spelled a little bit differently in, in uh, Greek, uh, which is what the, the word actually, where the word comes from in the text. But icon, if you're a, a Roman Catholic in particular, uh, or Eastern Orthodox. Icons are a representation of, of some heavenly reality. Uh, some people say, well, that sounds kind of like an idol. Well, I'm not here to have that discussion this morning. 
But the basic idea is that you look at this, this picture of Jesus or something else, and it helps you connect with, with Jesus himself. An icon. Jesus is the icon of God. When you look at him, you truly see who God is. In the Gospel of John, I believe, one of Jesus' disciples said, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. And you know, Remember how Jesus responded? Have I been with you all this time, and you don't know that he who has seen me has seen the Father? See, what has gone wrong in us is right in Jesus Christ. He has become the most truly human person the world has ever known in his perfect life, death, and resurrection. It's all, all that's broken has come undone in him, the image of God restored. And we are his followers. And as his followers, we begin to reflect Jesus out into the world. We, the church, are the light of the world because it's only here that you can see the image of God beginning to be restored. The true humanity is beginning to emerge. Notice I didn't say has fully emerged in the church, but is beginning to emerge. We are the light of the world because we know the way to rescue. Remember, who are you? You are rescued. As the great hymn says, probably the most popular hymn in American history, I once was lost, but now am found. I was blind, but now I see. Titus 3.5 says he saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified, made right, declared righteous by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Do people know about this outside of the church? No, because if they did, they would join the church. We are rescued, and so we are the light of the world to say this is the way to rescue. Remember what Jesus said about the way? He said a lot of things, but remember the one thing that I want you to remember about what Jesus said about him being the way? He said that the way to destruction is wide, and many will follow it. But the way to life is narrow. And few will find it. It's not just out there so that we can stumble across it, right? And say, hey, here's, here it is. Everyone, I found it. Just come follow me. And then everyone will be like, totally, that's the way. We're going to come and follow and, and, and go after Jesus. Jesus himself, when people said they were going to follow him, he said, are you sure? Let me tell you about the way. My way is that I don't have a home. Still interested? My way is giving up your family for me. Still interested? Remember the rich young ruler? Hey, Jesus, I've kept all the commandments since I was a kid. I'm a good Jew. I'm faithful in every way. What, what else do I need to do to inherit eternal life? I think that rich young ruler must have felt that there was some sort of lack. He'd done it all, and yet he didn't feel like he was okay. 
And Jesus said, go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. Because if there's anything that's got hold of your heart other than love for God, you're not going to make it. See, the church is the light of the world because we know the way. We know Jesus Christ. And that ought to be job number one for us, right? Pointing people to Jesus Christ. Both by saying, hey, over, look over here. There he is. That's Jesus. Follow him. But also in the quieter things that we do, right? In the way that we live with our families, being forever good and faithful to them, fulfilling all of our responsibilities and loving them well, and yet always loving them because primarily Jesus Christ has loved them first. Putting Jesus in everything. He is pushy. He is nosy. He wants to be involved in every part of your life because he wants to redeem every part of your life. Make you like him in every part of your life so that you will be light. The church is the light of the world because we have received the Holy Spirit who makes us God's children. I got in parentheses, by the way, in my notes here. Weeks one to two, week three. This is weeks four to five. We are Holy Spirit people, and the Holy Spirit makes us God's adopted children. What does this look like? How is this light to the world? Because it sounds kind of private, like a family thing, right? Well, first of all, the Holy Spirit transforms our hearts so that we are no longer bound to the ways of this world, but may live by the ways of God's world. Ezekiel 36, 27 says, And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The Holy Spirit brings resurrection to our lives so that we no longer need to live in the fear of death. That fear gets expressed in a number of different ways, doesn't it? I think the way it's expressed most of all is we don't talk about it. We don't talk about it. I saw a, a TV show this week where there was somebody dying in a hospital, and uh, he didn't know. He didn't know. And the kindest thing that the nurses and the doctors could think of to do for this person who was all alone was to not tell him he was dying until he quietly slipped Because we're afraid of death. Because they knew that if we, if we tell people, you're about to die, it's going to cause panic. And we think, well, the best thing that we can do for people is just to give them a pleasant final few hours or minutes or days or weeks or however long that they have. Some of us are living in a permanent fear of death such that every moment we have to grab as much pleasure and joy as we can and cram it in because we don't really believe that there's anything else that's coming. But the Holy Spirit brings resurrection to our lives so that we no longer have to live that way, ignoring the thing that we'll be doing for most of time, being dead. Romans 8.11 says, And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. Easter is not just something that happened 2,000 years ago. Easter is my future and your future and the future of every person who loves Jesus Christ. 
and who has trusted him. Our life is in front of us, not present here in its entirety, not in our past. Any of you ever say, oh, I miss the good old days? No, no, no. Look forward to the good new days that are coming. We are the light of the world because we are spirit people. And living by the spirit enables us to begin to live up to our new identity as God's children. The spirit himself, Romans 8, 16, testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. See, it'd be awkward if we were going to God and saying, hey, God, I'm your son. (laughs) Congratulations. I want you. You got a new son in me. Because why is God going to listen when the Holy Spirit, when God's own Spirit is saying, Father, meet your Son? Well, then it's set in stone. It's written on who we are because of the Spirit. As Spirit people, we are the light of the world because we have in us a new power and wisdom in the Holy Spirit of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5. For though we live in the world, we, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have, uh, excuse me, the weapon. No, that was right. On the contrary, <laughs> they have divine power to demolish strongholds. What kind of strongholds? We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He says, you hear all the buzz in the world about what's going on? Well, the Holy Spirit reveals the truth and will make you powerful to live by the truth and to speak the truth. Notice that being powerful to speak the truth is not the same as being powerful to make everyone believe the truth. I've worked on that a long time. Tried really hard. And I need to look back to my Savior, Jesus Christ, and recognize that not everyone who heard his words followed him. Why do I think I'm better than the Master? The church is the light of the world because we are Holy Spirit people. And make no mistake, sometimes people will just look at us and say, well, you're weird. Some won't listen because of that. But some, under the influence of the Spirit, will look closer to see. Finally, the church and its every member is the light of the world insofar as it reflects the light of Jesus Christ into the world. That's the purpose of the church. We're not here just so we can all high-five each other every Sunday and say, way to go, screw everyone else. I don't know if you can say that in church, but I did. It's not what we're here for. We're here to worship God and take that worship out into the world. This is a launching pad, folks. It's It's not for now the final destination. That's yet to come. How does the church do this? 
Well, first of all, it does it just because there are a whole stinking lot of us. If an individual is made in the image of God, if an individual knows the way to rescue, if a single person can be a temple of the Holy Spirit and a son or daughter of God, how much more the church where you have a lot of people doing that same thing together? Think about it. If a small mirror reflects a small image or maybe even only part of the image, you need a large mirror to reflect everything blown up so that everyone can see it. How much good is that little visor mirror that you got in your car? First of all, please don't use it when you're driving. We love you too much for that, and we love all the people around you too much for that. But secondly, can you get a really good look at yourself in that small little visor mirror? They put a light on there like that's going to help. No. The problem is you got a tiny mirror, and you can only see tiny bits of yourself at a time. If you really want to see what you look like, you need a big mirror. If you really want the world to see what Jesus Christ looks like, we need not just one or two or three people, but a whole church full of people who are living Jesus Christ-type lives, who are spirit people, who are doing it together. A soloist may sing beautifully, but a choir harmonizes and shakes the floor with its volume. One person may speak the truth from the Holy Spirit, but is easily ignored. A multitude all saying the same thing in the Spirit. Well, they can't be. you got to listen. This is the church working at its best. But maybe you're thinking, well, what about the real church? The church whose pastor has privately and publicly fallen. The church... Uh, that is persecuted and seemingly powerless. The church that can't seem to agree on anything. Folks, churches have fractured over paint colors in the social hall. What about the church whose people feel irrelevant or old or frightened by the rapid change in the world? Someone once told me that how you deal with failure tells you more about a person's character than just about any other time in their life. The truth is that no one goes through life without failure. And the church is made up of a whole bunch of someones. We're going to get it wrong. It's going to happen. I don't say this to excuse failure as if it didn't matter. It matters very much, as a matter of fact. I say it to remind all of us that when you're straining to reach a worthy goal, there will be moments that make you think you can never reach it. Some of those moments are caused by factors outside of our control, outside of ourselves, but others we find within. Isn't that at least part of what we heard from the Apostle Peter last week? As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Not are built like we're done. We're still in process. The building's not finished yet. And frankly, sometimes we living stones are calling out to each other, you're in the wrong place, get out of my way, that's my spot. Sometimes we do that in the pews as well standing over somebody. I sit there. That's my seat every year, 30 years. 
Who are you? Who do you think you are sitting in my seat? You know, we're being built. We're not finished yet. Yeah, the church is being built through the addition of new stones into the building as it grows, but also through the correct placement and securing of each stone in its place. The church is still under construction. We aren't done, not until Jesus comes back. And that means, in part, that we don't always get it right. You know, one of the strengths of science as a discipline is not just that it tells us how things work. The greater strength is it predicts how other things will work because of this thing over here. As a matter of fact, the strength of any theory about the nature of the world is not just that it explains one thing well, but that in explaining that one thing well, it also explains all of these other things over here. And you say, we're starting to see a a whole pattern to the world emerge out of this one piece of knowledge that we've gained. And I think the same thing is, is true about the church. See, we don't always get it right. And some people see that and they look and say, well, the church is no good. Look at how many times they failed and how broken they are. And we say, well, yeah, but see, the, the Bible says that. Jesus never said we were going to be perfect people here and now, that he was going to build a church that would be perfect in this world. He said he would build a church made out of real people in this world. And that sometimes we would get it wrong. But more importantly, he said we can always always, always come back. So I was preparing for our service this morning. Something that I was praying over with God. I was feeling a little bit lost. And I remembered the story of the prodigal son. Probably not by accident, but probably because I'm a spirit person. Despite my best attempts sometimes. And you know what? The moral of the story of the prodigal son, there are actually several, and I'm, I'm going to take one of the lesser ones. It's not that the son realized he was wrong and came back to his father and had a great speech prepared. He did. He had a great speech prepared. Father, uh, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your day laborers. Like, I'll go stand at Home Depot every day, and if you come pick me up, that'll be more than I deserve. But before he could open his... he He just said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and the Father was already running to meet him. See, the true light of the world is the church that reflects the light of Jesus Christ who came to seek and save the lost. And every time we wander off, every time we end up in the wrong place, even before we start to try and dig ourselves out, or bushwhack our way through. Jesus is already searching. He seeks and he saves the lost. Now, just as I said before, I I don't excuse failure. I don't excuse the church's failures. When they happen, we don't say, oh, gosh, golly, gee, guess we messed that one up. No big deal. Haven't we caught on yet? Every Sunday when we gather together as the church, there's something that we pretty much do every worship service. We confess together. We repent together. 
we turn again toward God with the intention of doing it right this time, relying on entirely on the Holy Spirit because we've learned not to trust our own power and wisdom. We've learned that we can't just bushwhack our way out of where we've gotten ourselves. We don't treat our own failures nor the churches casually because when we fail, the light fades, doesn't it? When we fail, we've, we've put the basket on top of the lantern so that it's hard to see its light. But when we fail, we don't give up either. We treat our failure with the cure of Jesus Christ, through whom we are forgiven by God's grace, and through whom we obtain an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is not our own. It comes from outside of me, outside of you. It comes from Jesus Christ. And that practice is light to the world as well. Because the world has to do that too. Every person, every social institution, everything that's ever been, begins the road to the light by turning around and saying, I was wrong. And so paradoxically, we can lead in that too. And if you're sitting in your seat this morning and thinking quite forgivably that the church can't possibly be the light of the world because it's so messed up, well, you've touched on something true. But you haven't touched on all of the truth. Because yes, the church sometimes fails, sometimes horribly, but the church is still united to the light of the world and that light shines brightest when after our failure, we cry out again to the true light of the world who lifts us up, sets us back on our feet and shows us again the way to go. Remember Jesus talking with his disciples and one of his disciples trying to be really impressive says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times. Feeling that he was really generous, right? Seven times is a lot. I don't know if any of us have forgiven anyone seven times. It's pretty hard at that point. And Jesus said, nope, not seven. And you know, in Ian's version of this, everyone breathes a sigh of relief. Woo, that was a close one. Seven is a lot of times to forgive somebody. And then Jesus is 70 times seven, which means as many times as they ask it of you. As many times. You know who our example in that is? It's Jesus Christ, because he's forgiven me a whole lot more than seven times. He's forgiven you a whole lot more than seven times. And if we're going to be the light of the world, we need to not just go out and brag about how good we've done, but also about how bad we've been. Folks, what you need to know about me is that I once was lost, and then someone found me. That I stumbled through this world like a blind man until Jesus found me and helped me to see. See, the church reminds us that the light of the world was never our own good behavior, but rather the fact that we are rescued by Jesus Christ to become good. So this is the truth. We, each follower of Jesus Christ, are the light of the world because we point 
to Jesus Christ. And nowhere can we do that better than in fellowship with God's people who are his church. That's where the solo becomes a chorus, where the tiny mirror becomes full size, where we work out together that God intends to repair and redeem a whole world. Though we often think, God's going to fix me. But his plan is not just to fix me, but to repair and redeem us all.